Thanks for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, check us out at cbctaylorville.com. Join us now as Pastor Steve delivers this week's message. This morning as you find your seats, I welcome you once again to uh, Calvary Baptist. I'm glad you've chosen to be with us today. I, I want to offer you, uh, for those of you who might be interested, a career opportunity. All right? I have a career opportunity for you. There is something that is known, and you'll see it on the screen. You can actually get a master's degree uh, in, look at the screen, just if you'll change the next screen, NC, there we go, NCRP, a master's degree. And this is, this is legitimate. There are some major colleges. We're talking Columbia and Georgetown and, and uh, San Diego State, major colleges. And, this nat- and it actually stands for negotiation, conflict resolution, and peace building. An actual master's degree in conflict. I told you last week that this is big business. It, whether you're in a business, whether you're in law, whatever, this, this idea of conflict resolution is huge in our culture for a lot of reasons. This is kind of the, the summary of, of what one of the degree programs offered. It's an online master's degree, negotiation, conflict resolution, peace building. You build management skills, resolution skills. You can, you can be in police work, counseling, education. Yeah, but look at the last part. The Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics projects a 9% increase in arbitration, mediation, conciliation jobs between 14 and 24. This is a huge growing industry, this idea of conflict resolution. Now, my, my thought is that may not be your career of choice. Some of you are, are beyond careers. You've got you are everything. So maybe you'll never take this as a career opportunity, but that's what we're talking about. When we talk about the word peacemakers, and, and don't you like the fact that the doves are flying this morning? Isn't that amazing? I love the way they went. But anyway, we're talking about peacemakers, and though they, you may never choose this as a career, do you understand that if you're a follower of Christ, if you claim to be a believer, you are, by his design, to be a peacemaker. You have the ability within you you have the capability because of the Spirit's work in you to do this, to be a peacemaker, but you also have the responsibility to be a peacemaker. This idea of being peacemaker, this is not optional for us as believers. It's not a matter of, well, you're good at that, I'm not so good at it. This is, this is for all of us to understand and to grow in this area of being peacemakers. James 3.18 is our theme uh, verse, our, our idea for this particular series And it simply says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Our goal is righteousness. Our goal is spiritual maturity. Our goal is being like God. That's that's what we're growing and what God is moving in our hearts. But the field in which that grows, the soil in which that grows, he says, is peace. Peacemakers sowing in peace will actually, that's where we're, the, the spiritual maturity that we're growing for and we want to see happen needs the soil of peace to, to work the way that God has designed it to be. So we discuss this in regards to our loving relationships as a church, how we grow, and, and, and this becomes one of those key issues. If we're going to grow in loving relationships, we've got to get better at peacemaking, at conflict resolution. This past week, someone, one of our small group leaders was sharing with me what one of your groups is doing, and I actually heard it a couple from our 21 days of prayer, taking that little phrase and, and actually having what-if prayers. 
what if we actually prayed every day for each other's kids? What if we, and, and, and what a concept. What would happen if we really took prayer for, its, for what it's worth and really believed that it can do something? What if? So let me just throw that what if into this, into this scenario. What if we really learned how to be peacemakers as a congregation of believers? What if we learned how to resolve conflict because conflict is going to come. That's inevitable. What if we learned this? What would happen in Calvary Baptist Church if we really learned how to become peace? What if? What would change in our world and the community around us if this church truly understood this concept? I, I believe that the, the possibilities are endless if we understand and grasp this concept. Today... We, we begin this journey and this process. We kind of introduced it last week. And today we're talking about peacemaking starts here. The first step in peacemaking we're going to talk about today, and we're going to share this throughout the next, the next couple of weeks. But the first step, and it actually comes down to a question, and I'm going to ask it, and then we're going to unpack it as we go through today. But here's the one to consider. First step, first thought is this. How can I please and honor God in this situation? First step in peacemaking comes for followers of Christ with this question, how can I please and honor God in this? It all begins right there. Romans 12, 18, as we talked about last week. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's huge. Peace with everyone, as much as it depends on you, well, it starts in a very, a very specific question, a specific way, how can I please and honor God in this situation? Now, just to give you an understanding where we're going, we're talking about what we call the four G's of peacemaking, and today we're going to talk about glorifying God, all right? Just to give you a preview, next Sunday we talk about get the log out, all right? And you'll, you'll want to see this because it's an important next step in this process. But today we begin with this idea of what, how can I honor God in this particular conflict situation? And that should be the first and the, the basic question that we ask ourselves as believers. So as we get started, sit back and imagine with me something. I want to share with you a real-life scenario. This is a true story shared by a guy by the name of Ken Sandy, and he shares this story with some people he's dealt with. So let me just share it with you, and we're going to, uh, we're going to walk through it today. Try to picture this, this event in your head, all right? There's, there's an adult brother and sister sitting on the, standing on the porch of a house, and from inside the house, you hear a voice screaming, saying, I've got a bat. Anybody opens that door, I'm going to beat you in the head with it. Okay? You got, got the picture so far, okay? On the outside, the older brother is saying, just let me in. I just want to talk. And the sister is all beside herself. And the sister is saying, we just need to get a lawyer. We need to get him out, but we need to do it the right way. But there's a realtor coming, the brother says. It doesn't matter. This isn't going to go good. So they leave. Let me give you the backstory to that. There's a, there's a family, has five siblings, four boys, one girl. One of the, young, one of the boys was from birth, uh, had a disability. He never left home. During those years, as he's grown now into adulthood with disability, for years after the father died, the mom took really good care of him. But in the last about decade, about the last 10 years, the mother's health had been declining, and so they reversed roles, and he actually became the caregiver for mom. And he would just do everything he could to take care of her. And he basically never left that house. And then suddenly, mom dies of a stroke. So now mom's out of the picture. The young boy's in this home. 
And in the will, mom and dad had taken care of the, the boy with a disability. He was going to have a trust, and they, he could put him in, a, in take care of him. He was going to be taken care of. But all the farm and the house and everything they had and all the land, and there was quite a bit, was to be divided up among the other four siblings. So now the four siblings, they've got the place up for sale. They're wanting a realtor to come. But here's this boy that has lived in that house and is taking, and, and he's beside himself. And he is not going to leave. And now they've got an issue. What, what are we going to do? I mean, this is our brother, but th- we need to sell the house. And mom and dad want us to sell the house. And it was all, it, this is all legal. It's all, but now we have this huge conflict. And they're saying, but if we throw him out of the house, the, the sister says it'll kill him. It, this has been his only thing he knows all of his life. So what do we do about that? So they go to the pastor, the, the, the sister's pastor, and ask him this for some advice. And, he, and they begin to share their story. And let me share with you what the pastor said to them. And I want you to hear these words. He said, uh, they, they begin to talk, and he said, okay, so let me ask you some questions. He said, first of all, you all profess to be Christians, followers of Christ. Yes, we do. Question number one then, what's the difference between the way you're handling this and the way a good moral atheist would handle this? Well, they were kind of quiet, like you were, and they, one of them said, well, I don't, I don't really see your point. He said, well, let me ask it another way. What's more important to you in this situation? To get the money that you, as soon as possible, as most people would, or to demonstrate the love of Christ to your brother? And one of the other brothers said, okay, I get it. You say we're, we're Christians, so we, just, we don't want anything. You know, we just give in to everybody and let them walk all over us. And the pastor said, that's not what I said at all. God is about justice. God is about listening to your parents' wishes. God wants that to happen, but God has something even more, something treating each other the way the power of the gospel would tell us to do that. And one of the brothers said, Preacher, I don't don't understand how religion has anything to do with our situation. And the pastor said, well, let me just ask you to do something. Would you be willing, and this is how he, he ended this part of the conversation, let's pray together right now. And ask God how to show you how to resolve this conflict in a way that honors him and honors your parents' wishes. Peacemaking is in itself a difficult process. And this first step in peacemaking is a huge step. How can I honor and glorify God in this situation? Now, today, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be going to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, ultimately. So if you want to go to your Bibles there or your electronic devices, we're going to get there. But let me just, let me just give some background to where we're going. Let's talk, first of all, a little bit more about peace and how peace is represented throughout the Scriptures. It permeates the Scriptures. Peace is a word you use. The, the Old Testament uh, Hebrew word would be the word shalom. It was a peace of fulfillment, and it's been used in so many ways throughout Scripture. Let me give you just a couple of thoughts. The peace itself actually is used to describe the very character of God. You're going to see verses like this one throughout the Scripture, but I'll give you Romans 15, 33. It says, the God of peace be with you all. Now, that's just a summary, but that, you'll see that particular phrase, the God of peace, the God of shalom. That is a part of the very character of God is this idea of peace. Now, the greatest example of God in peace is when he sent his son Jesus, who was known as the peacemaker, the one who made peace through his cross. He sends him to the earth. But when he, before he sent him, over 400 years before Jesus ever came onto this earth, he was introduced in a very, a very familiar passage of Scripture, you remembered at Christmas, Isaiah chapter 9, 
they, they, it talks about how that a child, a, a virgin will be born and, and the son will be given. And he gives him a name. And he says his name will be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. What's the next three words? Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. His very introduction is an introduction with the word peace. This whole idea of shalom is throughout the scriptures, how God, even this Jesus, as he's on earth, just before he leaves to his followers, before he goes to Calvary in John chapter number 14, here's his last words to them. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Now look at this next phrase. Not as the world gives do I give to you. We're talking about an out-of-this-world type peace. A world that, that uh, a peace that your, your friends may not understand. Someone without Christ will never grasp. And we're talking peace in the middle of struggles, peace of calmness, but we're also talking about peace in relationships. This is a peace that people without Christ just will never quite grasp. It's an out-of-the-world peace. And he says, so let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He says, I want to leave you with, with peace. So that same Jesus, Prince of Peace, gave some instructions to his followers. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 9, he said to them, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. As God's kids, we are called to be, we are expected to be, it's one of our identifying marks to be peacemakers. To, to understand that the conflict is going to be there, but how are we going to deal with it? Whether it's in our families, whether it's in our neighborhood, whether it's right here in the middle of our church, how do we understand this idea of being as God's children, those who make peace? So this message of peace, it just permeates, it just wraps itself through the, the whole of Scripture. And, and we want to keep that in mind as we get to these thoughts. Let me throw out some, we, we've had some questions and thoughts as we've gone through and talked about peace. Let me throw out some observations, just some general observations about this whole idea of being a, a peacemaker, this making peace. Here, here's the first thought. Peacemakers will deliberately chase after peace. Peacemakers are not just content to say, well, I hope it gets peaceful. I hope it all, it all works out. It's not casual. It's not assumed in a church when you're a peacemaker. You don't assume, well, we're all Christians. We just are going to get along, right? I mean, we're all, we're all just happy in Jesus, so we're never going to have... Con there, it's never assumed by a peacemaker that it's just going to work itself out. Here's, what, here's a quote I want you to get. The love that Jesus wants us to show leaves no room for unresolved conflict. The fact that we are to love one another as Jesus loved us, and loved, that leaves no room for us to say, ah, oh, it's just, it, it, who can, I've got enough friends, we'll work it. It leaves no room for unresolved conflict. That's how, it will not happen accidentally. It won't happen just because you hope it happens. A peacemaker understands this is going to be deliberate. This is going to be intentional. First Peter chapter 3, here's how Peter put it. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. Now, that's all part of peacemaking as well. We'll talk about that later. But the next one is what I want you to get today. They must turn from evil and do good. Look at this last phrase. They must seek peace and pursue it. Followers of Christ, if you want to you see the good days, you want to see the fulfillment, God, well, one of the aspects is you're seeking peace. You're, you're going after it. 
The word pursue in that verse, it's a verse we'll see, and it's translated in different ways, but the word pursue literally means, as we said, it means to chase after. It means to go quickly after. It's like you're running, you're being made to run because someone is tailing you. It's a word, we would use the word harass. We would use the word stalk. And in fact, in the New Testament, this word is also translated as persecuted. When people have been persecuted, that means they had been pursued and not for good intentions. Here's the point he's saying. Peace should be something, Christians, that we just go after with everything that we have. That's part of who God, the God that lives in us is a God of peace. So if the God of peace lives in us, we should be pursuing it, seeking it, going after it, chasing it, whatever, stalking it, harassing it. I need peace. Hebrews chapter number 12, make every effort, that's the same word as pursue, make every effort, pursue to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Make every effort, living in peace, holiness, righteousness, sowing in peace. It's all in the same package. He says, listen, go, everything you have, make every effort to pursue peace. So peacemakers, you, deter, you, you deliberately chase after it. If you're a peacemaker, number two, peacemakers know that peace is more than the absence of conflict. Here's something we talked about last week. The difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. Both are important. We both need to be in, in both ways. But the difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper is the difference between peace and a ceasefire. It's between real peace and just not being a fight. Now, we, we want the fight to go away. We want the, the hitting to stop, the screaming, the yelling, the hurting. We, but understand that when that stops doesn't mean that there's peace. You can stop the violence and still not have peace peace. Think about it. You might, you might have had this, this scenario in your house. Sister Sarah uh, hits Sister Susie, smacks her upside the head. Then the fight is on, right? Some of you been there, okay? You fill in the names. You know who I'm talking about, right? Susie and Sarah, they're in this tiff, and Sarah has smacked Susie upside the head. So what does mom say? Sarah, do not hit your sister, and if you do it again, punishment comes. Okay, so the hitting stops, but is there peace? <laughs> if you've been there, you know exactly the answer to that. The violence may stop, and it may stop for a period of time, but there is no peace. There, there is an absence, there is a stop of the conflict that can be seen, but the peace is still not there. There's still an embroilment of the, uh, what we're talking about peacemaking is we're talking about reconciliation. We're talking about restoring a relationship. We're take, let's just take Sarah and Susie, for instance. We're talking about setting them down and finding out why Sarah smacked Susie upside the head. There could be a very valid reason. Maybe not. There could be. could be something that's been going on and just not been dealt with. It's a matter of you sit down and you work out why it is. So, you, so when they leave the room, not only is Susie not being hit, there becomes a, a peace, a reconciliation, a restoration of a relationship. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about peacemaking. Douglas Kroll, he's one of those professional peace builders that we talked about earlier. He makes his statement, and I think this is so, this is a secular man saying something I think is so biblical when we talk about peacemaking. Here's what he said. Peacemaking concerns a deeper way of looking at conflicts than just winning or losing. It looks at conflicts as opportunities for people to grow, to accept responsibility for the relationships they're in, and for the potential of apology and forgiveness. What a peacemaker does is their goal is to transform that conflict that is inevitably going to happen into something 
an opportunity for something positive, something profitable. And that's what God has called us to be, is peacemakers. Someone who takes and, and changes the conflict. Ephesians 4, verse 3, we ended with this verse last week. Make every effort. There's our phrase again. Have we seen it already? Pursue, make every effort. Do it. This is a little different word, and the, the description was, this is like a gladiator-type work. When a gladiator was sent out, one of the last things that they probably would hear is, make every effort to stay alive today. When you go out in there, make, try your best to come back alive, right? That's the same phrase. Make every effort. But look what he says. To keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of what? Peace. You see, the unity of the Spirit is what God gives us as his people. It's what we have in this, in this congregation. But the, the conflict is going to come. The conflict is going to come and try to disturb that, try to divide that, try to take that apart. He says, so, so guard that unity with all that you have. And how do you guard that unity? Through the bond of peace. You work out the, the conflict through this, this area of making peace, and that's what enables you to keep the unity. It all comes down to this idea of peace. One last observation about peace, and this may sound counterintuitive, but look at this. Peacemakers know that the message of peace can actually cause conflict. Here, here's what we understand about the idea of peacemaking. You, you, you decide you want to make peace. The other party may not be interested in that. And that in itself becomes a conflict. They don't want to talk about it. They just want to let it, they, they don't want to bring peace. They're just happy because you're no longer fighting. They're okay with sitting across the room from you. We don't want peace. That in itself could be a conflict. The, the other thing is the issue at stake in this conflict may not be just a matter of taste. I like green, you like blue. It could be a matter of truth and error. could be a matter of something that, that is a, a conviction and compromise. And the point then comes down to that to make peace, there has to be someone has to understand that their, their position is incorrect. And there's a movement, it's a difference of truth and, and untruth. That same Prince of Peace, Jesus, had said a very powerful phrase in, John, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wait a second. You're the prince of peace. You're going to leave us with peace. You want us to have how how do you to rectify the fact that you say we're going to have a, a sword? It seems to contradict everything else we know about peace. Here's what we understand. The gospel, the message of Jesus is a message of peace. It brings us peace with God. It enables us to have peace with one another. But that very message will be a conflict because some people don't want to accept it. And if they don't want to believe that that's true and they don't want to accept truth, then we have a conflict. The truth is he offers peace. But if you refuse to accept that peace or you refuse to accept his truth, then suddenly a conflict ensues. In fact, the next couple of verses after this, verse 35 and on says, For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be in their own household. Who, but notice this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's saying, listen, right in your own house, you're going to have people who believe truth and not believe truth, and that's going to cause a conflict. At some point, we have to understand that we have no, we, we have no way to compromise truth. You cannot sacrifice truth on the altar of peace. 
It's not about saying peace, 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 as long as, and we're willing to compromise. You can't compromise truth. God is. God has said what he says is true. His peace is a message that you can have, but if you choose to reject it, there's going to be a conflict. And as peacemakers, it's not about saying, okay, then, then we just back off and we don't, we don't say anything that might cause someone to not, not enjoy. It's not about compromising truth. In fact, it may cause, even within your own family, a division of, of, of happiness because the truth cannot be compromised. Truth must always be upheld. And so sometimes that message of truth actually could be a cause of conflict. Here's a quote I read this week. I thought it was powerful. Truth has often been tested and confirmed in the fires of controversy and conflict. Truth is going to, at some point, it's going to be truth because someone's going to say yes and someone, there's always going to be a conflict and it's going to be confirmed as it goes through that. So here, that's some things we know about peacemaking. It's, it's not a simple process. It's going to take your whole out effort, deliberate effort. It's something that in itself that may cause a conflict, and it's something that you learn how to, to work through, and you still know how to approach even those who disagree with you or those that are not following truth. You still learn how to handle that better. That's the part we're talking about, being a peacemaker. And so what we're getting at today is talking about how do we transform conflict? How do we not just not just have a conflict and we, we muddle through it and we hope to fight. How do we transform conflict into something that actually glorifies God? How do we transform conflict from being a, a problem to a purposeful event? How do we transform conflict from being an obstacle in our lives and in our church to being an opportunity for God to do something? That's what God gives us through a peacemaking. We have the possibility to transform conflict into something that God can use. So that's where we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to unpack a few verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse number 31. But before we get there, let me make sure you understand. Chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians are basically chapters on conflict. You can have a chance. You can go back and you read them in context. There were conflicts going on between the following of certain uh, religious rules, certain dietary rules, certain social laws. And there was, within the church, there arose these conflicts. And, and one on one side and one on the other. And you've got lines drawn. And you've got people in conflict. That, that, that whole conflict floods itself through chapters 8 through 10. And it was, it was threatening to divide this congregation. In fact, in many ways, this was a divided congregation. It was a church that, that depending on who they believed, who they followed, they were divided based on these issues. So when we come to chapter number 10... Starting verse 31, what we get there is kind of a summary of how to handle this, this conflict situation, this conflict atmosphere. Let me, let me read the verses, starting verse 31. Here's what Paul says. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Verse 32, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Chapter 11, verse 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Within these, these four verses, I want to I unpack some, some truths, peacemakers, that as we take this first step in the process, some things that we can now learn to transform conflict into something that actually is honorable to God. 
Let me start this way. This is the very foundation. Conflict provides, every time we have a conflict, it provides an opportunity to, number one, glorify God. To do something that lifts up the name of God. Let me take you back to this part. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, say this last phrase with me. Do it all for the glory of God. God says, and remember, this is summarizing this whole passage on conflict. And he says, whatever you do, do it to glorify God. This is where we get our first of our four G's. This idea of glorifying God comes from this very concept. First thing, put God's glory above every other consideration. Whatever your, your conflict, whoever it is, whatever it involves, first and foremost, put God's glory at the top of every consideration. How can I, in this, glorify God? When choosing what you're going to say, what you're going to do, what, how you're going to respond, how you're going to react, first thing in our minds, if we can somehow say, how in this, how can I say this, how can I do this in a way that glorifies God? God. Now, the context gives us a little perspective. If you go back to verse number 23, he actually said something interesting. He said, as he's coming to the summary, here's what some of the people are saying. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. Well, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. It's great learning, isn't it? I have my rights. I have the right to do, and as a Christian, I have the right, and I can do, and sure, you have your rights, but not every but not every right is, is right. Some of our rights can actually be, be wrong. Some of the things that we are allowed to do may be not beneficial, may not be constructive, may even be sinful. If you were to back up just a few verses to verse number 14, one of the things he talks about is flee idolatry. That's what he says in verse 14 is you should actually flee, run from anything that is, and he gives this kind of a concept. Well, here's the point. Idolatry is sin. Idolatry is wrong. Run from it. Get away from it. You don't have the right to disobey God by being idolatrous. Oh, you have the right, but that, that right becomes wrong whenever you're... So whether it's being idolatrous or doing something that God has said is not due, you, that's, you can say you have the right, but that's not what God has in mind. But he's saying in context, it's also you don't have the right to do something that hurts someone else. You don't have the right to do something that, that takes away the, 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 the benefit for the other people around you, that removes from them the things that God has in mind for them. You, you have the right, but he said, and look how he says this. He's very powerful. He's talking about food and so forth in, in this whole context. So he starts off that way, whether you eat or drink, okay, so he's talking about feeding, giving food to idols and drink to idols. That's all in context. But now Paul very wisely broadens that scope, does he not? Look what he says next. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, I think Paul just kind of opened the door, didn't he? It's not, it is what you eat and drink, and that was the context. But just in case you're going to try to say, well, I'm not eating or drinking anything, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. He's now broadened this to help us understand that the antidote for strife and self-centered issues is, will this glorify God? Is what I'm going to say and do going to do something that glorifies God? Whatever I do is supposed to give glory to God. Can you imagine what would happen in our situations of strife and if we would just make a pact as just believers within the church, if we would make a pact before we say, before we take an action, we say, what can I do to glorify God with this? If we just paused long enough to say, 
will this glorify God? Will what I'm about to spew glorify God? Will what I'm going to ask of you or demand of you, will that, if we just paused, can you think how just that one little thing could change some of the reactions, some of the issues that we have with, with just in the conflict uh, ultimate within us? It ultimately, inevitably, you're going to glorify something, someone, usually in conflict, we're not worried about glorifying God. We're worried about glorifying what I want, myself, my nature. So something's going to get glorified in this. Paul says, let's make our first response, will it glorify God? He repeats it similarly in Colossians chapter 3 where he says this, Whatever you do, whether it's in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, word, deed, whatever, do it all in Jesus' name. Can you say that honestly in Jesus' name? Can I say that to you in Jesus' name for God's glory? Can I act the way I'm about to act with you in Jesus' name? Would Jesus want to have his name on what I'm about to do with you? Whatever you do, word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. I don't know if anybody else right now is, is feeling a little, little caged in with that thought. Because I've thought personally how some of my conflicts would have been different if I had just remembered this one principle. If I would have just stopped before I said that. If I had just stopped before I sent send on that email. If I would have just stopped before, if I had just stopped and said, will this, how can this glorify God? If I would have just stopped right there, and of course the answer probably would have been different, and if I could have rearranged and done something different, how could it have changed some of the issues and the conflict because the very first step you have an opportunity Christians everything you do can glorify God if you're willing to take that step to see if that truly can happen one side benefit from this and then we'll move on and that is if your goal is to glorify God that also helps you not to worry so much about the results because that person may not be in the place right now to accept that peace but if you do, as the Bible says, everything that depends on you to bring that peace, and you're doing all that you can, and you've brought it to God, and you're doing it to glorify him, then, you, then you're able to leave that in God's hands. And if the result is not as quick or not quite what you respond, then you've done what you've, because you and God know that you've done what you could to glorify him with your actions. You've done your part. God will do his part. They have to do their part. But you have done what God has called you to do. Here's, here, these verses continue to move on. Let me, let's back up again. Verse 31, he says this. He says, uh, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Then we move on, verse 32 again. Do not cause anyone to stumble. Jews, Greeks, church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. You not only have an opportunity in every conflict, Christians, to glorify God, you also now, to glorify God, have an opportunity to serve others, to serve the person that you're in conflict with. If you remember, that's where Jesus boiled everything down to. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom. He, he set the, 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 the plate for us as Christians. Our, our goal in glorifying him is serving others. And we can, in a conflict, not only glorify God, we can serve others other people. Remember the two greatest commands? Love God, love your neighbor. How can you best describe that within a conflict? You honor God, you glorify him, 
and you serve the one in which the conflict exists. In the heat of a conflict, I'm focused on God, number one, and then I focus on, and how will God use me to serve this person in the middle of this conflict? Go back and look at the verse again. Do not, I, I will not cause anyone to stumble with my attitudes or actions. It's not just what you do, but how will it affect someone else? How will what you're doing, what you're saying, how you're responding, how is that going to, could it cause them to stumble, cause them to, to fall back in their Christian faith based on what you say? I'm not going to cause anyone to stumble. He talked about Jews, Greeks, the church. It doesn't matter if they're friends, enemies, or right in the family of the church. I'm not going to allow that to, what I want done in my life to cause someone else to stumble. And then the next phrase kind of gets me. I try to please everyone in every way. Now, you might want to circle that because right off the bat, many of us would say that, for one, that's impossible. You're never going to please everyone, right? And I'm never going to please everyone completely. That, that in itself is impossible. And actually, it almost seems to contradict something Paul would say later in Galatians because he said, I am not here to please people. If I'm pleasing people, then I'm not pleasing God. So, okay, Paul, get your straight. Am I pleasing people or am I not? What's the, what's the goal here? Understand, what Paul's saying in Galatians is you, we should never try to, to please people to get what we want. Please people to, to make them like us or to please people so that, so that they will manipulate them into doing what we want. If we're going after pleasing people for our benefit, then he says then you're pleasing them and you're not pleasing God. What he's talking about in context here is this. What I'm going to try to do is whatever I can for the benefit of this person I'm in conflict with. I'm now switching it. It's not about my rights. It's about how is it affecting this other person I'm in. I now have the opportunity to turn. We, we never shrink away from truth. We never say, oh, I want to please you, so I'm not going to push that. It's not about truth. It's, not, it's about pleasing them in the sense of how can I serve you? What can I do to help you as you're going through this situation? If you, in fact, if you notice up in, the, in verse 10, up a little bit further, um, he said to them, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, he said in our verse, so they may be saved. Verse 24, he says, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. He says, listen, I want them to be saved. And then you go up. If you see the next verse, verse 24, he said, I want them. It's not about my good. It's about the good of other people. It's about what is best for them. And that's where God has in mind for us. What is it that is best? In fact, that word others, it's a very specific translation. I found this very interesting. It, some, one version says you're to do it for the good of your neighbor. Well, that's interesting. And that's a possible translation, but it's not the word neighbor means someone nearby, probably someone that has some similar, because if you're in the same neighborhood, you probably have some similar, there's just something that, that binds you together. But this word others in verse 24 of chapter 10 is a word that literally means someone different from you, someone that doesn't agree with you. And he said, what I'm doing in this conflict is I'm going to do what's best for the person that I don't agree with. The other people that we're in separate, the one that I'm having the conflict with, I'm going after their benefit. I'm doing it for the benefit of others. Romans chapter 14, verse number 19, Paul's another, con another version about conflict, and he says this, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and a mutual edification. There's our phrase again, make every effort. Pursue it, harass it, do whatever you can to do what leads to peace and the building up of the other people. It's not just we want to stop the fight. It's what, where's the peace coming from and how through this peace can I build up the other person? 
It's not just me getting what I want. It's how can, the, how can God who's going to use me to not only glorify him, but I will glorify him by seeing the best in someone else's life, building them up in their faith, building them up in their life, mutual edification. Let me end this, this particular passage. We unpack it. Verse 31 again. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's what we know. Everything glorifies him. We do it by serving others. But chapter 11 and verse number 1, and as you know, the, the original scriptures were not written in chapters. This was one long letter, right? So they, they all kind of moved together. And, and every, most scholars would believe that this chapter 11, verse 1, this verse actually just kind of closes this talk about con- conflict. And here's what he says. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Do it all for God's glory. Do it so that I glorify God by serving the other person. And now I do it so that I can actually grow more like Jesus. I can actually, in my spiritual life, become more like him. When Paul says, follow me as I follow, that's a huge statement, first of all. He's basically saying, listen, if you follow me, you'll be following Jesus because that's who I'm following. That's a huge statement to put out there. And it's something as Christians where he wouldn't say I'll be perfect, but he says, listen, if you follow me, we're both going to be going after Jesus because that's who I'm going after. That's huge. But also what he's saying is that as we follow our example, we actually become, we actually learn, we actually begin to, to be like Jesus. You follow me? I'm following the example of Jesus. I'm becoming like Christ. We'll become more like Christ as we follow him and do what he's called us to do. When it comes to the things that honor God, it's about following him. I've heard people say it. Maybe you've said the same thing. I know I've said it in some ways. Well, I'm not Jesus. <laughs> right? Okay. What do you expect? I'm not Jesus. I'm, I'm not perfect. And granted, you're not Jesus. Thankfully, you're not Jesus. Thankfully, I'm not Jesus. Because there'd be a lot of other issues if I was. You understand? I'm not Jesus. I get that. But here's what we know in the, in the course of our lives as believers. What God has promised us is the moment that you accept Christ as Savior and you receive him by faith into your life, that he begins a process on the inside of you. And he, piece by piece, day by day, is in the process of making you more like Jesus. And he knocks off the rough edges. He moves things around. He begins to to bring things in your life that begin to transform you into becoming more and more like his son. Romans chapter 8, two famous verses about this. In verse number 28, most of you are familiar with, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Man, I love that verse. I'm sure if you know it, you love it. We, we sing about it. We bring it up. Anytime we're having a struggle, we go to this. All things work together for good. We love this. And it's such a true promise for those of us who follow Christ. But a lot of times we use this verse and forget the next one. And the next one actually explains what the good is that he's talking about. Verse 29 goes on to say, For, or because of this, those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He said the good that God's talking about, God, God doesn't promise us we come to Christ and then the goal is that you're happy and you're wealthy and you're, you're, you're all the, the, the world. He says the goal is not to be comfortable. The goal is to be more like Jesus. And since we're in the world that we're in, to be more like Jesus, there's going to have to come some things in our life that are going to have to push off some of the bad and we begin to replace it with who he is. And part of that is the process that God is using in our life. That's the good. 
God says all things work together for good. Well, the good is that you're becoming more like Jesus. So some of those things, it doesn't mean everything is good, but everything that comes in our life, he uses for the good of making us more like his son, Jesus Christ. The highest purpose is that we become more like Jesus. So here's what I suggest to you. In context of what Paul's saying, conflict is one of the tools God will use to make you more like Jesus. God will allow conflict in our lives and teach us how to respond to that. And as we learn and we grow through that, it actually begins to change us to become more like Jesus. It becomes an example for us to follow. It becomes things that we, we are now learning. We're now responding differently. We're changing our bitterness and our unforgiveness and our stubbornness for who Jesus is. Think about it. As, you, as you're going through a, a conflict, someone... You know, they, they frustrate you because they're always, you know, they provoke you, they frustrate you, so God's going to say, so practice some love and forgiveness. Someone is never prompt, they're always late, they're always just bugging you, and God's going to be teaching you a little bit of patience. Maybe it's the conflict is that which you're, you're you know, you're tempted to give up on someone because they just keep failing, and God's going to say, remember my faithfulness to you. How does that work? You know, we don't, we don't learn things unless we go through them. And, learn. and so God allows even that conflict to begin to teach us that this is how I want you to react. This is how I'm changing you into being what I've called you to be. The process, and, and I heard this and I, I want to share it with you because it just helps. It, we call it the ABC of spiritual maturity or the ABC of spiritual growth. And here's how the, what it works. Adversity builds character. Adversity, whether it's in life and it's the struggles, it builds character. Maybe the adversity is you and the conflict with someone else, and God says, I want you to grow through it. I want... So that adversity actually builds your character. You begin to worry less about going through a conflict or an issue, and you worry more about growing through that conflict. God, what do you want me to learn through this? God, what do I need to change because of this? God, this is a conflict. This, is, these, this person is, and, but God, what, am I, what do you want me to learn through this? You want me to glorify you. You're going to want me to serve the people that I'm involved with. And you want me to learn something that's going to make me more like you. What is it that you've got in mind for me? I started a story at the beginning. Let me wrap it up. Four, four brothers and a sister. One is afraid in a house. They're threatening to sell the house that he's the only one that he knows and he's grown up with. The pastor leaves him with the challenge. Will you just pray and ask God to show you how to best honor him through your decisions and as well as honor your parents' wishes? So God did something in those lives. And what the sisters and brothers did, they pulled together. They had a nice meal, pulled everybody in a big banquet room. And among them, there was, there was 12 nephews and nieces that were watching all the proceedings, wondering what's going to happen. They've heard about their crazy uncle, and all, you know, they're wondering what's going to happen, right? They're all gathered around this table eating, and the oldest brother stands. He hands his brother a plaque, and he said, Frank, we want to honor you today. Frank takes the plaque, and he begins to say why. He said, for the last 10 years, you devoted yourselves to care for our mom." in a way that we couldn't, and we honor you for that. Today, we want to give you this plaque, and it says, To our brother Frank, the best of all sons, who cared for our mother with selfless love and undying devotion, 
Your companionship filled her life with joy and delight, was a constant reminder of her of the love of God, and with the deepest gratitude to a wonderful brother from Joe, John, Jenny, and Matt. They honored him for all that he had done. Then they handed him an envelope, and inside the envelope was a phrase that said, lifelong residency. And they said, as long as you're alive, this, you can stay in this house. Now, we've sold the farmland, or we're going to sell the farmland, and there's people ready to buy it. So all the land, but you will have the house as long as you're alive. And then once, the house, once, once you pass, that'll pass on to our descendants. But as long as you're alive, you have this house in front of you. For the first time in years, the brothers hugged, the sisters hugged. They no longer didn't just have a, they no longer had the conflict. Now they have peace. But here's what caught my attention about this whole story. A teenage son of the oldest brother was sitting in that room and here was his answer. Here was his response to everything he saw. Maybe there is a God after all. Because there's no way my dad would have done that on his own. Glorify God. Serve others. And become more like Jesus. That's what peacekeeping allows us the opportunity to do. Now, are we willing to say, God... I want to become one of those peacemakers. I know you've called me to. I know that's what I'm supposed to do. Whew, got a long way to go. But the first stop would take us back to our opening question. How can I honor God in this situation? If we will just make that our mantra, before we respond in anger, before we respond with an answer, God, how can I honor you with this? 1 Corinthians 10.31 simply says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God.